Well, take your Bible and turn with me to Psalm 21. I'm so glad that you're here, boys and girls. I'm glad that you're here, families. I'm so glad that all of you are here. And um, we have a psalm tonight that is the psalm for the hour. It is the psalm that God has for us because it's where we are in our study through the book of Psalms, but it's so needed, so needed to be preached in churches. And tonight, the title of the sermon is Praising God for the Victory After the Battle. After the Battle. Follow with me as I read Psalm 21, beginning with the title, it is a Psalm of David. O Lord, in your strength the king will be glad, and in your salvation how greatly he will rejoice. You have given him his heart's desire, you have not withheld the request of his lips, Selah. For you meet him with the blessings of good things, you set a crown of fine gold on his head. He asked life of you, you gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you place upon him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him joyful with gladness in your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. And through the loving kindness of the Most High, he will not be shaken. Your right hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will devour them. Their offspring you will destroy from the earth and their descendants from among the sons of men. Though they intended evil against you and they devised a plot, they will not succeed. For you will make them turn their back. You will aim with your bowstrings at their faces. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. And then the conclusion of the psalm is the heading at the beginning of Psalm 22. It's for the choir director upon the Ijelet HaShahar. More on that in a little bit. The Bible teaches that for you who are Christians, your life is to be a life of gladness and joy in God. Your life is to be a life of joy in the salvation of God. Because hear this, God saved you in order to worship him. God radically transformed your soul so that you would exult and Rejoice in him. God delivered you, so now you delight in him. That's why, by the way, Romans chapter 1 talks about the great error and the folly of the wicked. The wrath of God is upon them. It's the folly of unbelief in Romans 1.21 because they don't worship God, nor do they honor him or thank him as he ought to be thanked and worshipped. But, but we as God's people do, we as God's people do honor God and we do worship God and we do thank God and we do 
praise the Lord. And, and why do I mention that by way of an introduction? Well, our lives should be lives of gladness because, number one, this is what you're going to do in heaven. Our lives should be lives of gladness because, number two, this is what distinguishes the church on earth from the rest of the world. True joy and gladness and thankfulness, not in the things of the world, but in the Lord as we're living in the world. We ought to be people of joy and gladness because this is what the church needs most. The church doesn't need to be like the culture. What the church needs most is a people who are distinct from the culture, who are marked by joy and gladness. And you know what? This is what the unbelieving world needs most. The church needs a distinct, or pardon me, the world needs a distinct, a worshiping, a Christ-enthralled church. That's what the unbelieving world needs. And, And when we are those who recognize this, when we recognize the joy of what God has done for us and the gladness that comes from that, that's what fuels a life of praise and gratitude and holy living, that God has saved me and he has delivered me. And God will never pour out his wrath upon me. We have every reason to rejoice. Every reason to rejoice. And that's what Psalm 21 teaches. Now, last week in Psalm 20, you'll remember the king, David, was going out to battle. And Psalm 20 taught that as the king was going out to battle, the people of Israel gathered to pray for him. They prayed for their king. They prayed for their leader. They prayed for God to give them the victory. That was Psalm 20. Now Psalm 21 is kind of the part two of that. God heard. God delivered. God answered their prayer. He gave the victory. 21, Psalm 21, is the response of praise from the victory that God gave. If we look at Psalm 21, it's quite an interesting outline in the psalm. Verses 1 to 6 is all about expressions of praise and praise and praise to the Lord. Verse 7 is kind of the mountain peak. It's the exalting of God. It's the king exalting in the Lord. It's trust in the Most High. And then verses 8 to 13 is the very sobering and, could we even say a little bit scary, considerations of doom that will come on the wicked. If I could just give sort of a word of... Of, uh, of, of giving careful attention to all of us tonight, even boys and girls. This is the psalm for us tonight. If there was ever an occasion to ensure that you are right with God, if there was ever an occasion to examine yourself and make sure of your salvation, this is the night. Because if you're an enemy of God, if you're not living for Christ, If you're not trusting in him, the psalm is going to teach a very scary situation that you are in. So let's listen to this amazing psalm that we have. David wrote it. It's a psalm of David, and it was meant to be 
uh, sung for the choir director. And in the conclusion, it's the heading of Psalm 22. I know it's a little bit odd, but it's actually the conclusion to Psalm 21, but it's the heading of Psalm 22. It's upon the Ijelet HaShahar. You see that there at the beginning of Psalm 22. That's a tune in Hebrew of the dough of the morning. It'd be like, we're going to sing the song to the familiar tune of Amazing Grace. It was just a, a tune that they knew. We don't know it now. We don't know what the tune was. But it was, Ajelet HaShahar, the doe of the morning, the deer of the morning. That was the title for the Hebrews. There's an interesting interpretive note. Early Jewish interpreters interpreted Psalm 21 as referring to the ultimate victory of King Messiah. It's actually quite amazing that even before the time of Christ, there were Jewish rabbis and Jewish interpreters that said, yeah, 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 this is true for David and his victory, but it goes beyond David to the greater David, to the Messiah, and the ultimate victory that he has and that he gives to his people. Isn't that a great place to pause for a minute? You and I triumph in Jesus Christ. Remember 1 Corinthians 15, 57. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or 2 Corinthians 2, 14. Paul said, we always are led in triumph in Jesus Christ. So Psalm 21 is the praise. Our king went to battle. We prayed for him. That was Psalm 20. And then God heard and God answered and God delivered our king. Now Psalm 21 is our responsive praise. How do we, how do we learn from this? How do we praise God and live lives of gladness for what God has done for us? Three simple lessons. Look in your outline. Number one, triumph in your king's victory. Verses 1 to 6 are all about the victory that God gave to the king. Isn't that great? They prayed, God answered. They prayed for victory, and God heard, and God delivered. These opening verses are verbal parallels to Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. And then what we read in Psalm 103, forget none of his benefits. He pardons your iniquities. He heals your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. Don't forget the benefits of God. Praise him. Psalm 21 does that. We might think of it as the ABCs of praising God. Look with me in your outline. Look at the A. Answers. Verse 1. O Lord, David says, O Lord, in your strength the king will be glad, and in your salvation he will greatly rejoice. Verse 2. You have given him his heart's desire. You have not withheld the request of his lips. God, we, we prayed and you answered. 
He had a desire, according to Psalm 20, verse 4, may God grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your counsel. That was Psalm 20, verse 4, and God did it. God fulfilled, he heard, he answered, and it produces joy, gladness, worship, and praise. Do you see at the end of verse 2, that little word right there? Selah. It's rare that it only occurs once in a psalm. Usually it's kind of a division marker throughout the psalm, but only one time. Why? Because the king has come back from battle. We prayed, God heard, God answered. We pause and we reflect. I don't know about you, but I can be so busy in my life that I forget to sometimes to pause and reflect. Maybe in your days, you are so busy and you're so overwhelmed and you've got much going on and we just forget to pause and praise and reflect and just bubble forth with gladness to God. We can be busy people, but we shouldn't be so busy that we neglect to pause and ponder. Well, then in verse three, look at letter B or number B, the ABCs, B for blessings. Verse three, you meet him with the blessings of good things. You set a crown of fine gold on his head. Well, that's exactly what Psalm 103 said. You crown your people with loving kindness and compassion. These are the benefits that God has given to his people. God, you have blessed our king. You have given him good things. You've given him victory. He's got the victor's wreath. God, we praise you for what you've done. Verse 4, ABC, look at the continuance of life. In verse 4, he asked life of you and you gave it to him. The, The Lord heard and the Lord answered. God prolonged his life. And then in verses 5 and 6, look at the D, the dignity. The glory of our king is great through your salvation, splendor and majesty you place upon him. That's language of Psalm 8. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You made him, verse 6, most blessed forever. You make him joyful with gladness in your presence. Oh, what, what a praise the people of Israel have to God for giving deliverance to their king. You know what it reminds me of? Many of you have heard this. It reminds me of what was called the Roman triumph. The Roman triumph. It, it was a huge civil ceremony and a really kind of a religious rite in ancient Rome. It was publicly held to celebrate the military king or the commander who would just come back to the city after a, a victory. And on the day of the procession, the, the Roman king would wear a crown on his head, and he would have a a garment on him, and it would be full of joy and full of blessings and singing and flowers that would be strewn along and clouds of incense and a huge procession. First, all the captives and the slaves and the enemy king would be chained and walking in front. And then the captured weapons and the armor and the gold and silver would be on carts and they would be processioned in front. 
And then Rome senators and magistrates and political leaders would then be following that in the procession. And then finally, you'd have the general himself. The king himself in his four-horse royal chariot, and everything would be a loud music. It would be a loud triumph. It would be a Roman triumph of the king who had the victory. Rome did it. Israel of old did it when David, their king, had the victory. Christian, in Christ, you are led in a triumphal procession in Christ. You and and I have every reason to triumph and to rejoice and to be glad in our God. We ought to rejoice. We ought to be glad. Lessons we can learn from this psalm. Number one, triumph in your king. Praise the Lord that your victory is in him. Praise the Lord that your victory is a done deal because he accomplished it for you. Rest in him. Number two, in verse seven, in your outline, you got to see this. What's a second lesson for us? Trust in your king's loyal love. So what did David do? How did David get the victory? Well, look at verse 7. For the king trusts in the Lord and through the loving kindness of the Most High, he will not be shaken. Oh, God, God is sovereign, yes. But God gave victory because the king trusted. The king trusted. Indeed, our Messiah King, ultimately Jesus, has trusted in the Father. You got to get four key truths or four key words from verse 7. You see it there in your outline. There are four S's. Number one, submission. The king trusts. You and I need to do that as well. The word for trust is a fascinating word in Hebrew. It's ongoing action. You might better render it, the king is actively trusting, I-N-G. He's trusting in the Lord. That ought to be you and me. We are trusting in the Lord. Yes, you must believe on Christ for salvation, but you need to keep trusting in the Lord. That's what David did. God gave him victory. He submitted to God. What does it mean to trust? It's not knowledge about God. The devil knows about God. But trusting in the Lord means that you submit to him. It means that you rely on him. It means that you're abiding in him. It means that you have put all of your hope and confidence in the Lord. Number one, submission. A second key word you got to get is is the word strength. I remember in seminary, I had to read a long article where these... Hebrew or these commentators were trying to define the Hebrew word hesed, the loving kindness of the Lord. Verse 7, the king trusts in the Lord through the loving kindness of the Most High. He will not be shaken. There are four elements to this word hesed that you got to get, the covenant love of God. Number one, it is a divine love. It is a divine love. Second, it is a unilateral love, meaning it's not contingent on you responding to the deal. 
God is a unilateral loving God. He loves you even in spite of your rebellion against him. Third, his love is a covenantal love. When we think of the loving kindness of God, it is a covenantal love. A covenantal love, meaning God can't break the covenant. He can't break the promise. And then fourth, this is a faithful love, unchanging. It never fluctuates. It never dips. It never goes up. It's always constant and strong and perfect. And then fifth, it is eternal and unbreakable. The the strength of God's loving kindness is God's enduring commitment to be faithful to his covenant. The king trusts in the Lord and in the loving kindness of the Most High. Christian, that's what you and I need to remember. That's what you and I need to do. Trust in the love of God. And then the third word is the Savior. Through the loving kindness of the Most High. This means that God is the only God, the unique God, the unrivaled God. All the other nations had their little gods, but our God is the only God that surpasses them all. The Most High. And when you trust in the Most High and in His love, the fourth, there is stability. You'll never be shaken. Never be shaken. It's kind of like the prodigal son. When the prodigal had taken the money from his father and he went and he squandered it on loose living, immoral living. And then he came to his senses, meaning he repented and he rehearsed that confessional formula. I have sinned against heaven. I have sinned against you and your sight. Father, will you forgive me and treat me as one of your slaves? And he goes home. He has nowhere else to go but to go back to his father. And then in Luke 15, the father sees him. The father runs to him. The father embraces him. The father kisses him. I mean, all of these verbs showing the love of the father toward the wayward son. That's the love of God. That's what God does in his loyal love. That's what we read that our God does in Romans chapter 5. In verse 6, while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we will be saved from the wrath of God through him. This is good news, the love of God. But the question for all of us, do you trust in this loyal love? I mean, could you make verse 7 your own? I trust in the Lord. And through the loyal love of the Most High, I will not be shaken. Can you say that? Can you make that your confession of faith tonight? Is that true for you here tonight? If it is, you're trusting in the Lord as your Savior. If you can't make it your own, you're lost. And verse 7 is the confession of the king that we can learn from that to trust in our king's loyal love. But the psalm isn't over. It would be easy to preach and end here. But the psalm goes on. And as an expository preacher, 
I have to preach the whole psalm or you're going to come after me. (laughs) Verses 8 to 13. Third, what's the third lesson? You have to tremble before your king's vengeance. Now, when I read verses 8 to 13 here in a minute with you, you need to hear them with the ring of a military crusader, warlike tone of, of a king who's mad. And you have to hear it with the king who's mad and he's hunting out and he's seizing and he's killing all of his enemies. That's the way that we've got to hear these verses. Actually, a way to illustrate this, you read in recent weeks about the huge earthquake in Turkey and and Syria, right? What's the death toll? 50,000 people now or maybe more? And you read these articles and you hear the testimonies of people and And it almost sounds like an apocalyptic nature, such strong and mighty and unstoppable shaking and quaking of this this earthquake. I mean, could you imagine the power and the force and the enormity and the danger and and the hopelessness that you have nowhere to run, nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, nowhere to go from this earthquake? Verses 8 to 12 is the unbeliever has nowhere to run and nowhere to hide from the earthquake of God's anger. There's a key word in verses 8 to 12. It occurs 12 times. Actually, I think it occurs much more than that in the original Hebrew. It's the word you. Talking about God. You, O God, will do this. You, O God, will do that. You, O God, will do this. What does God do? Verse 8, he finds his enemies. Man, modern man is making a bet that God doesn't see what he does and that God is not going to find him out for judgment one day. But that's not what God says in verse 8. Your hand will find out all of your enemies. And your right hand will find out those who hate you. God seeks them. He finds them. He seizes them. Well, if God finds an unbeliever, maybe he'll be impressed with the unbeliever who says, I'm good. No. Verses 9 and 10, God devours his enemies. You will make them like a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will devour them. So much so their offspring will be exterminated. What's the point of these verses? God finds his enemies. He burns his enemies. He swallows his enemies up and he absolutely consumes all of his enemies. Malachi Chapter 4, verse 1. Behold, the day is coming, burning like a fire, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 29, I read it earlier, our God is a consuming fire. God finds his enemies. 
He devours his enemies. In your outline, look. He frustrates them. Now, this is sobering because there's a lot of world elites that are pretty powerful. They got money. They think they have power. They think they have control. They're hungry for control. Verse 11. 11 says, oh, no, 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 no. All your plots will not succeed. Do you see that there? You could go up to any world leader and you could say with a very stern and serious face, your plot will not succeed. You think you're in control. Your ideologies, your philosophies, your worldviews, you will not be able to overpower God. You won't. And then verse 12, in a most frightening verse, as if it couldn't get worse, verse 12, God will make them turn their back. That's military language of they're defeated. And then God aims at his bowstring at their face. And he doesn't miss a shot. It was, it was July 8th, 1741. Jonathan Edwards preached sinners in the hands of an angry God for the second time. He preached it once before with no effect. He preached it a second time and he couldn't even finish the sermon because the people were crying and weeping and howling and shrieking so loudly in the pews. They had to stop the worship service and they had to minister individually to people because they were weeping so loudly over the frightening truth about hell. Edwards said this, the God that holds you over the pit of hell, much like one holds a spider over a fire, God hates you and he is dreadfully provoked and his wrath toward you burns like fire and he looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be dropped into that fire. Edwards continued, the wrath of God burns against you. Your damnation will not sleep. The pit of hell is prepared for you. The fire is made ready. The furnace is now hot. It's ready to receive you. The flames are raging and they're aglow, ready to take you in. And as Edwards preached that sermon for the second time, oh, that the people were weeping and they were begging for mercy. They couldn't even finish the service because people were fearful of the coming wrath of God. And I think in these verses in Psalm 21, it's a similar truth that God is angry with the wicked. And yes, in Messiah, there is victory. But if you're not in Messiah, you are doomed to be destroyed. I mean, think about this for a minute. Unbelievers. Unbelievers. I mean, you're you're defeated already. And the call to all unbelievers is to not be thrown into hell as God's trash. For those who are thrown into hell are objects of God's profoundly intense hatred forever. What is hell? 
but to be confined in God's prison forever with the devils, the demons, the wicked, with the darkness, with the fires, with the shrieking, with the pain, and with the acute and vivid conscience. Forever. Forever. Forever, without, without end. I mean, after a million, million ages have gone by, if you looked at a clock, you would notice that the second hand hasn't moved at all. You're not closer to the end than when you began. And it's almost as if the psalmist is saying, oh, you, you godless rebel and you sinner and procrastinator and indulger of sin, how could you resist the mighty arm of the maker of the world? How could you stand against the perfect aim of God's arrow when he has it aimed at your face? I think, I think the psalm, is calling to all to examine ourselves and to all unbelievers. Leave your worldliness and leave your sin. Come to Jesus Christ for life. Leave your self-confidence and leave your easy believism. Leave all confidence in uttering a mere sinner's prayer and surrender your life to the cross of Christ and find the joy of bowing at his feet as a slave. The psalm would say, leave your hidden sin. God would say, kill it, mortify it. Come to Christ for cleansing. Come to the Savior for the fountain of his blood is sufficient to wash all sin away. What these verses teach All unbelievers will not win. And God is not indifferent. He's indignant. God is not apathetic. He abhors the wicked. And so the call from the psalm is to come now, unbelievers. I mean, come at once. Even come today. Come immediately without delay to the Savior Like Hebrews says, today, if you hear his voice through the reading and preaching of the word, don't harden your heart. Come to Christ. Galatians 3.13, who was cursed in your place so that you don't receive the divine arrow that will be shot at your face. And he will win. In our Savior, we have the victory. David had the victory. And the people are praising. And the people are worshiping. And yet you and I don't rejoice in a human king. We rejoice in our Messiah king. And in the victory that he has accomplished for us, he has trusted in the Lord. We trust in him and all of the judgment of God that is directed toward the wicked, toward us, has been turned away in Christ. We know this was a psalm that was sung in the congregation because look at how it ends. Psalm 21 verse 13. 
Be exalted, O God, in your strength. We will sing. We will praise your power. It's like the it's like the congregation of worshipers are meeting in the temple and they're saying, let's sing to our God. Let's praise our God because he's given the victory. That's what we ought to do. Let's meet together and let's praise our God. He has given the victory. If you're here tonight, And the arrow of God has been turned away from you because it was shot and it hit another in your place. Oh, thank him. We end where we began. We thank the Lord for our salvation. But if you're here tonight and you're not submitted to Christ, boys and girls, men and women, If you're not surrendered to Christ, you will not succeed. That's what the psalm says. You won't succeed. You won't win. But the only way to win is to bow in surrender, to come humbly before the Savior and say, I I surrender all. I give it all up. I need you. You're all all I have. You're You're all I need. You're all I want. It's like the 10 lepers when Jesus cleansed them. Remember that? One of them came back and thanked the Lord. Let's be like that leper and thank the Lord. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for your word of truth, your word of clarity, your word of conviction, and the word of triumph that you have given to us. Oh, how we praise you for how you have revealed yourself your triumph, your victory, your judgment, your holiness, and your love so clearly in Psalm 21. Thank you that we are led in triumphal procession in Christ. All glory be to him. In Jesus' name.